I love the Christmas season. I told you that last week, and I mean it. I mean it again this week. I love it. It is my favorite part of the year. And I told you last week that one of the reasons why it's my favorite part of the year is because of Christmas music. I love Christmas music, but that's not the only reason why I love this time of year. Another reason why, at least near the top of my list, why I love Christmas this time of year is Christmas movies. Just like I love Christmas music, I love Christmas movies. And, and I, just to let you know, like Christmas music, I am not an indiscriminate fan of all Christmas movies, okay? So uh, just like I, there, there are some bad Christmas songs, Christmas music, there are some bad Christmas movies. I don't like all of them. I won't name names just like I did not last week for fear of, you know, offending anyone if you like certain movies. All I'll say is Hallmark and Lifetimes, and I'll just leave it at that. But uh, even saying that, I probably offended at least half of my audience. But but there are some really good Christmas movies, and I'll tell you a few of my favorites. Elf is one of my favorites. Um, I, I love Christmas Vacation. I've always loved that. Growing up as a kid, we, we watched that all throughout Christmas time, and uh, I can quote every line, I think, to that movie, one of my favorite movies. Uh, I, I love Santa Claus. I, I love the Polar Express. Then you've got some nostalgic ones like Miracle on 34th Street. And um, you've got the, the, the Grinch. I, I love the, the old one, the old animated version of the Grinch, although Jim Carrey's version is pretty good too. But, uh, and then you can't forget about Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, one of my favorite movies as well, although it depends on which iteration of that movie because there's, I think, like 4,872 of them. But uh, speaking of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, uh, we were actually watching a, an iteration of that, a version of that the other night. Marcy Maley and I, Chris had already gone to bed, but we were watching uh, the movie Scrooged that has Bill Murray in it. And so we're watching that, and admittedly, that's not one of the all-time classic Christian movies or Christmas movies. It's not even one of the best versions of, uh, of A Christmas Carol, but it's not bad. And so that's what we were watching, mainly because it was about the only thing on, uh, on the station that we were watching or any Christmas movie that was on. And so we're watching the movie, and, and the movie ends, and the, sh- the station that we're watching the movie on is just showing nonstop Christmas movies throughout the, uh, the season. And so when that movie's over, another Christmas movie comes on, and I use air quotes like that because the movie that came on was Gremlins. Now, I don't know about you, um, but Gremlins used to freak me out. It used to just creep me out as a kid, and it still kind of creeps me out a, a little bit today, if I'm just being honest. And I don't typically think of Gremlins as a Christmas movie. I don't know about you, maybe you do, but I don't typically think of Gremlins as a Christmas movie. Although I got to researching because it's been a while since I've seen it. And the reality is it actually has quite a bit of Christmas theming in and and throughout it. In fact, the whole premise of the movie kind of centers on the giving of a particular Christmas gift, that cute little mogwai, remember, that the father gives to his son. And so... Now, let me be clear. In no way am I trying to advocate for Gremlins being a Christmas movie. I don't consider it to be. But I bring that up, uh, one, because I thought it was funny, but two, because it got me also thinking about all the other movies that we don't typically think of as Christmas movies, but they've got Christmas themes kind of running throughout them, or it's set at Christmas, or the background is Christmas. Uh, Movies like Die Hard, and Lethal Weapon, Batman Returns, Trading Places, and maybe you can think of some others. Here's my point, and bringing all this up, I promise I've got a point. Here it is. Christmas has a way of just showing up 
where you'd least expect it. I never expected to see Gremlins being a Christmas movie, right? And, and I never thought that way. But Christmas just has a way of showing up where you least expect it. I, I'm reminded of the story of the young boy who went to the zoo for the first time and he'd never seen a peacock. And so he saw, he was just blown away when he saw that, that peacock just, you know, show out all of its brilliant plumage and, and, and feathers. And so later that night, his dad uh, didn't go to the zoo with him. And so he asked him, hey, son, well, what did you think of the zoo? And, and the son said, dad, you wouldn't believe it. I saw a Christmas tree come out of a chicken. Again, Christmas just has a way of showing up where you wouldn't necessarily expect it. Like, for example, in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, we have four accounts of the life of Jesus. We call them the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they're all telling the same story, but they're telling it from a different perspective because they're all writing to different audiences. And in particular, Matthew is writing to a primarily Jewish audience. Audience, and he's trying to convince them that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. And it's kind of interesting that Matthew himself would be given that assignment because Matthew was formerly a tax collector, considered by the Jewish people to be a traitor and a reject. And now he's writing about another person whom they rejected. And so he tells the story with a very particular agenda. And he doesn't start like the other Gospels. Mark and John really don't even tell the story of the birth of Jesus. And Luke describes it, uh, tell, starts the birth story with angels singing and, and birth announcements all over the place. But Matthew starts the story of Jesus with what reads like, and you know the way to describe it, like a Hebrew phone book. Here's what I mean. This is how the Gospel of Matthew starts. These are the very first words in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1 starting in verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, notice right off the bat, the story of Jesus doesn't start with once upon a time or in a galaxy far, far away, because this is not a fairy tale. Whether you buy the whole story of Jesus's miracles and his life and death and resurrection, what you have to remember and, and admit is that he was a real person. There was a real man named Jesus who was from a real place called Nazareth. The story of Christmas is rooted in actual time and space, and that would have been critical for Matthew's audience. That's why he begins with Jesus's genealogy, because in Jewish culture, your genealogy was, in essence, your resume. It's what established your, your, your legal and your social status in that society. For example, there's an Old Testament story in the book of Ezra. Ezra was a, a, a prophet of God. He was a man who led uh, a, a group of Jewish people to come back to, um, to Jerusalem after being in Babylon, being exiled, and after they were captured. 
led them back to Palestine. And so Ezra had, had gone back to Jerusalem to repair the temple so that the Jewish people could worship in the temple again. And some guys showed up who said, hey, we're, we're Levites, and so we, we've come to work in the temple. And Ezra's basically, his first question to them is, okay, where are your papers? Where are your records? Where, where's your genealogy? And they said, well, we don't have them. We lost them. And Ezra said, well, I'm, I'm sorry, but you, you can't serve in that way. You can't serve in the temple if you cannot prove your genealogy that you are Levites. And so your, your genealogy, I say that to say, your, your genealogy made you legit. You see, Matthew knows his audience. He knows that the very first thing a Jewish person is going to think of when you say someone is the Messiah is, okay, show me the records. Sh- show me the, the genealogy. Is he legit? Can you prove that he's a direct descendant of King David? Because I don't care what else you do or what else you say. If you are not a descendant of David, then you cannot be the Messiah. And it's interesting because Jesus's critics challenged him on many different fronts, but they never challenged his genealogy because they knew the the records proved it, that he was a direct descendant of King David. And so that's part of why Matthew starts that way. But Matthew isn't just providing a genealogy. He's also providing a theology and in the least expected place. Because four times at the start of this genealogy, Matthew includes some of the black sheep in Jesus's family tree. And typically in, in those days when you gave a genealogy, you would skip a few names. And in fact, Matthew does skip a few names. But usually you took out the names that made you look bad, right? You would include the ones that made you look good and you would take out the ones that made you look bad. However, Matthew kind of does the exact opposite. He, he takes some of the ugliest skeletons out of the Jesus closet and puts them in the record. And so any of Matthew's readers would have wondered, why the who's? Why don't you put people in the record that make him look as good as he could look? Reminds me of a story a woman told in Reader's Digest. She got a call from a salesman giving her the opportunity. He wanted to give her the opportunity to take out a second mortgage and a great rate, he said. But she replied that she did not need a second mortgage. And so the salesman then asked, well, would you like to consolidate some of your debt or maybe even all of your debt? And she replied that she had no debt. Well, the guy is persistent. He really wants her business. And so he says, well, would you like to maybe free up some some cash so that you can do some remodeling in your house and around your house? And she explained that she had just totally remodeled her house She paid for it all and she had no debt to which there was silence on the other end of the line. And then a few seconds later, the salesman asked, are you looking for a husband? Because that's the kind of person you're looking for. Someone with seemingly no flaws, someone with a record that is spotless, someone that's going to make you look good. And there were women like that for Matthew to choose from. Matriarchs that everyone honored like Sarah and Rebecca, and Rachel. But instead, Matthew goes into the closet and he pulls out some of these ugly skeletons. And maybe, maybe we don't know these stories all that well. The first woman Matthew mentions is Tamar. She was a Canaanite and she married one of Judah's sons. He died. Their custom was then for, one of the bro- or then for her to marry the brother, Judah's um, son's uh, brother, He died too, 
and Judah didn't want him to or want her to marry his last son. But the problem was she had no children. And if she had no children, then she had no future in that culture and in that society. And so she took matters into her own, own hands. And guess what she did? She dressed up like a prostitute and seduced her father-in-law to get pregnant. I mean, I'm not making this up. This is not Jerry Springer. This is right in the Bible. Then there's Rahab. She doesn't dress up like a prostitute. She is a prostitute. In the book of Joshua, some Jewish spies are sent into the city of Jericho to spy it out before the nation of Israel is going to, um, going to try and conquer it. And so they go into Rahab's house. And the reason why nobody thought second or had second thoughts about men going into Rahab's house is because that's what men did all the time. Men were coming and going out of her house all the time. But these Jewish spies promised her, if you'll keep us safe when we come and destroy the city, then we will save your life. She did, and they did. Then there's Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. The Moabites were a nation started out of incest, and they were despised by the Jewish people. And then... Last but not least, there's Uriah's wife. You may know her by the name of Bathsheba. She had perhaps the most infamous affair in history and committed adultery with King David, one of Jesus's ancestors, the one that they were looking for him to be an ancestor of. In fact, reading Jesus's genealogy might ought to make you feel a little bit better about your own genealogy and about your own family tree and some of your relatives because we all have squirrels in our family tree, don't we? And if you're thinking, well, I don't have any squirrels in my family tree, well, then you're probably the squirrel. But these stories were all part of Jesus's story. They're all part of his family tree. They're the who's of his history. And the good news is that Christmas is for who's. Like, for example, women. All four of these unique additions to the genealogy are women. And that's kind of strange because women were hardly ever listed in genealogies. Because in a patriarchal society, a woman could really do nothing to enhance your status. In the ancient world, everybody just wanted to know, who's your daddy? That's what they wanted to know. Jesus was born into a world in which women were basically viewed as property and inferior. For example, there's a story in the Gospel of John in chapter 4 where Jesus is at a well and his disciples had gone into town to get some food and a woman shows up. She's a Samaritan who were despised by the Jewish people and she's got a shady past. And when the disciples come back, the text doesn't say, and they were surprised that he was talking to a Samaritan. Nor does it say, and they were surprised that he was talking to a sinful person. It says in verse 27, they were surprised that he was talking to a woman because rabbis in that day and age just didn't do that. They didn't waste their time and their knowledge on people thought of as inferior. But Matthew's genealogy foreshadows the introduction of a radically new perspective. And I would argue that no person in history has done more to elevate the status of women than Jesus of Nazareth. If you just look historically at the evolving views of the worth and dignity of women, you can trace them back to a time in history and to a place and to a person. No rabbi welcomed women like Jesus did. 
They could travel with them. They could be a part of, of what were typically all male get-togethers because Jesus gave them permission. They were at his cross when the men deserted him. And it was, in fact, two women to whom Jesus first gave the privilege of proclaiming that he had risen from the dead. There's a story in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 10 that, that many of us have probably heard, but I think we miss part of the point, the radicalness of it, because we don't really understand the, the cultural innuendos. But in this story, there are two sisters, Mary and Martha, and they have a little get-together for Jesus in their home. And during the get-together, Martha is where the women thought they belonged. She's in the kitchen preparing the food, making preparations for all that was going on. Mary, on the other hand, is in with the men. It says that she was sitting at Jesus's feet. And Martha gets upset and she tells, or tells Jesus to send Mary back in there to help her, back in there with her. And it's not just that Mary wanted, or Martha wanted help in the kitchen. It's that Mary had crossed a line. Sitting at the feet, that language, that's discipleship language. Mary was in there with the guys expecting Jesus to teach her how to be a disciple, just like all of them. And Jesus praises her for it. He tells Martha, that's good and all, but but Mary has chosen what's better. And he was training her to be a witness and a proclamation of his kingdom. And no other rabbi had ever done this before. But Jesus changed all of that. He gave women the honor and dignity that God intended for them to have all along. And he gave them a place to serve in his kingdom just as much as any man. And not just in the kitchen. But it wasn't just women that Jesus gave a place to. It was also the helpless. You see, one striking truth about those women was their vulnerability. Tamar's future was completely in the hands of Judah. Rahab's future completely depended on some Jewish spies that she barely knew keeping their promise. When you read the story of Ruth, you realize that she has no other option as a poor foreign widow but to seek welfare from someone else. Bathsheba was at the mercy of the king when he summoned for her to come to his bedchamber. None of these women could save themselves. And that's Matthew's point. How many of us have heard the phrase, God helps those who help themselves? Sounds good, and I, I get the premise of it, but you know, that's not in the Bible, right? Sometimes we take those, those quotes that sound biblical um, and, and we ascribe them to scripture, but that, that's not in the Bible, and, and not only is it non-biblical, but in reality, it's, it's unbiblical. Christmas says God helps those who cannot help themselves and in fact helps those who don't even know they need helping or even want the help. Because God doesn't do relationships like we do. Truth be told, oftentimes we tend to invest in relationships where we get a return. But God's not like that. It's not because we offer God something or because God needs us. We were helpless. Jesus didn't come simply because we needed polishing or needed to be repaired. He came because we needed to be rescued. He came to choose the who's, which also includes outsiders. Again, for a Jewish person reading this, listening to this, they'd be saying, well, why... 
Matthew, why did you have to go there? Why do you have to start off the story by telling us and reminding us that in our past there was a Canaanite and a Moabite and a Hittite? All of those races were viewed by Jewish people as less thans, as outside the purposes of God. As a PR man, Matthew is doing a terrible job of image management. But Matthew is not a PR man. He's a preacher and a theologian. And he's taking his Jewish readers all the way back to the promise that God made to Abraham that through your seed, I will bless all the nations of the world. Not a few, not some, all the nations of the world. And Matthew wants us to know that the kingdom of God has room for people of all places and all faces and all races. The Christmas story has some radical views about the who's because it also includes sinners. I mean, Matthew could have picked women with cleaner reputations, but instead he picked a woman who seduced her father-in-law. He picked a woman who was a former prostitute. He picked a woman who betrayed her husband to sleep with a powerful man. You know, Jesus's ancestors probably belong on the Dr. Phil show, right? And that's the point. Jesus didn't just come from people like his relatives. He came for people like his relatives. That's one reason he's the Messiah, because he came out of a mess. But he also came for the mess, like Matthew. I mean, why is Matthew telling the story like this? Because Matthew himself was a mess, and he knew it. He was a scandal, and he knew it. Matthew knew that nobody wanted his name on their list to invite to anything until Jesus came along. Because Jesus wanted people like Matthew to come to his party. You see, Christmas reminds us that scandalous people aren't just part of the story. They're the point of the story. I heard a story about a doctor who was doing his residency and he was excited one day to be assigned to the leading surgeon of the city. And so he got to the hospital, went to the operating room, everything was already prepped. And so the surgeon said, okay, today we're going to do an appendectomy. And then he turned and he handed the scalpel to that young doctor. And the young doctor said, well, I'm, I'm not ready to do this on my own. I mean, I've never done this before. And the seasoned surgeon said, son, there's nothing you can do that I can't fix. That's the gospel. Paul would later say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. In other words, it's absurd. It's offensive. In fact, the Greek word that Paul uses there for stumbling block is the word scandalous. Because you see, the scandal of redemption is the redemption of scandal. There's nothing you can do that God can't fix. And you know who that's good news for? Everybody. Christmas is good news for all genders, for all races, for all moral failures, which is all of us. 
At Jesus' table, all sit down as equals, men and women, Jews and Gentiles, preachers and prostitutes. We're all equally sinful and lost, and we're all equally forgiven and loved. You see, the birth of Jesus gave birth to the most inclusive faith the world has ever seen, because God has a heart and a place for the who's. And isn't that different from how God is often represented? He's often pictured as distant and and suspicious and he's spying on you because he's got a list making, you know, keeping track of everything you've ever done wrong. He's just watching and waiting for you to mess up, right? He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out if you've been naughty or if you've been nice. Sorry, it's the wrong person. The God of heaven sent Jesus to take the list of your wrongs and to nail them to a cross. You see, God has seen it all. You're not going to shock God. You're not going to surprise him. There's no skeleton in your closet that's going to turn him, that's going to cause him to turn away from you. There's no story that cannot be set right by the story that started in Bethlehem. Here's something we need to memorize and rejoice in every single day. It's from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. It's a trustworthy saying. It deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Like Matthew, like Tamar, like Rahab, like Ruth, like Bathsheba, like you, and like me. Praise God that there's room for his table, room at his table for all the who's. There was a baseball scout by the name of Tony Lucadello. You probably never heard of him, but he's considered one of, if not the greatest scout, baseball scout of all time. Sent more young men to the major leagues than pretty much anybody else. And he was kind of unusual because he didn't use a radar gun, didn't use a, uh, a stopwatch, And he said, you know, most scouts focus on performance. They just see what the boys can do. I'm more about projecting. Sure, I see the hitch and the swing, and I see the quirky throwing motion, but I also can see what he will be if he gets the right coaching. You see, Christmas teaches us to look at people, including ourselves, not from their worst moments or what they've done, but who who they can be when they meet Jesus. And so let me ask you a question. Who's your who's? Who's that person whose story embarrasses you? Who's that person you might have stopped praying for? Who's that person who is far from God? Because maybe today what you need to hear is that nobody's worst moment has to be their final story. Any name can be linked to Jesus' name, even yours. Because remember, the Messiah can do a lot with a mess.